0: As you open up 1 Peter, most likely in your Bible, the way that it is, kind of broken out into paragraphs, you're going to have a hard break after verse 2, and, and some of you, it's going to link it all the way, verse 3 through verse 12. What we're going to do this morning, is I'm going to read 3 through 9, because I really think this is kind of the big uh, discussion section, but we're only going to go through verse 5 this morning. We just don't have enough time. You're, uh, <laughs> you don't have enough endurance. I don't have enough endurance. And so we're only going to go through just a couple of verses. But I want us to be able to see the big macro picture there in 3 through 9, the issues of salvation that Peter's addressing. And then we're just going to unpack a little bit of that this morning. So follow along with me. We're going to have the first couple of verses on the screen. You can read along in a copy of God's Word. It's either provided for you or brought on your own. Starting in verse 3, reading through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, amen? Though you, have, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Man, what a rich, rich, incredibly rich a beautiful piece of scripture that we have an opportunity to journey through over the next three weeks. Now what I want us to understand, if you weren't here last week, let me just kind of refresh this and reframe this. Peter is addressing those he described as being elect exiles. If you're in a life group, you're going to talk about what it meant this past week for you. How did you experience being an elect exile? Effectively, this is not your home. Like, earth terra firma this is not your home we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom the reason we experience awkwardness this sense of kind of deep inborn homesickness is because this place is not home if you've never experienced homesickness that probably says more about your home than it does you know your ability to overcome things homesickness is a real thing You've been away from home for very long. You've been away from kind of the comforts of home. You feel this kind of discomfort, this disquietude that wells up inside you. As Christians, as Christians, there is a supernatural, spiritual homesickness that's created by God to be at home in you. Why? Why? It's this constant reminder of our dependence upon him and our ultimate destination. Our dependence upon him and our ultimate destination, this place is not our final home. Recognize that all of our efforts, all of our energies expended trying to make this place our final home are wasted. They're fruitless. It's a fool's errand doesn't mean that we should be complacent. It doesn't mean that we need to pour out and expend our resources, our time, and our energy, and our money trying to make this place better, trying to lead others to walk righteously, trying to change our culture around us, either politically or spending time with those we disagree with, seeking to bring them into sound reason. These things are good for us to do, but we don't set our ultimate joy and happiness on seeing these things brought into reality. Do you understand the difference? The Christian should be involved in the culture around him or her. You absolutely should. Why? Because you are both salt and light, and you have an overwhelming ability to have a profound impact in the pervading culture around you, into the abortion culture, into the pornography culture, into the open marriage culture, into all these things The light and salt in you by the power of God through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit allows you to have profound impact in the culture around you. This is not the time to disengage. But we absolutely need to make certain friends. That we're not seeking to make this place a utopia because it will not happen. Do you understand me? Peter writes to a group of people who understood what it is to be culturally different. They understood what it is to be in the midst of community, but just to have this sense of not really fitting in, not really belonging. And so he gives them the expression, he gives them the name of elect exile. God's choosing made it so that you'd be a pilgrim and a sojourner in this land, that this land would not be your final destination. And so it creates in us this sense of, of home expectancy or, or homesickness. And so you'd expect in some ways that coming through that, coming through that description and giving to people was well, a pretty weighty message to receive. It's a pretty weighty message to receive. You find out Daniel, you find out Ken, you find out Steve that, that this is not your home. And so it creates this feeling of, what now? What do I do? And so you would expect that he would give some type of, well, God support them, will God strengthen them. But look what he does in verse 3. After giving them the information that, that things are not going to necessarily get better here, he comes out, and what does he do? He turns around, and he praises God. He turns around, and he praises God. Verse 3 opens up, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see in this response as we go through and we see things politically happen that we don't agree with. We see things happen culturally we don't agree with. We see things happening in our own families that we don't agree with and we struggle. What is the, the end that, that he would have us understand in this? That God is still worthy to be praised. He's recreating, he's he's redrafting, he's wanting us to understand that there is a work of recreation that's happened in us. God created, but he has recreated in us and giving us new life. And this new life alters our perspective, and this renewed and new perspective allows us to do what? To worship God in the midst of trial. Worship God in the midst of trial, and in fact, it's calling us, demanding of us to submit ourselves to the posture and position that when we recognize God as high and supreme and highly exalted, it leads us into this daily pursuit of worshiping Him. So, Peter writes and he addresses these who are elect exiles who find themselves on the fringes of society, and he directs them to this call of praise and worship and glory and adoration of God. Blessed be God. And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the foreknowledge of God, Him knowing you, that He sent the Son to save you. And on the basis of this, Him bringing you into this, He's to be praised and adored. But this is a hard thing for us. We get so caught up in the the myopic vision of all those things going on around us, those things that are more immediate, those things that we feel are more pressing. And when we do that, we take our eyes off of an eternal perspective. As Christians, as Christians, we recognize that we have eternity in mind and this eternal landscape, this eternal destination is heaven. This eternal destination is heaven. And as such, we look at the various trials and difficulties that we encounter in this life in a radically different way. And in such a way that when you go and you explain it to your non-believing spouse, your non-believing neighbor, your non-believing child, they have no compartment whereby to understand this. So for them, it's ridiculous. For them, it's empty hope. It's just well-wishing. It's just, oh, you're just saying someday things will get better. No, as a Christian, I'm saying today things already are because my eternity is settled by God's work. My eternity is settled by God's work. So even in the midst of tremendous difficulty, I'm not saying someday things are getting better. I'm saying today they already are. It's tremendous difference. One is a vain hope set on, I just really wish these things would work out. The other is on settled promise. That God's word says that these things are already settled. They have already worked out. And on the basis of this, we praise him. On the basis of this, we worship him. So Peter calls us and he demonstrates what it is to praise him. Blessed be God. Blessed be God who relates to us through the salvation offered to us freely by extension through the Son. There's so much to unpack just in that little bit there. Look what he goes on to say. He says, God should be praised, and he's going to give us different reasons why God should be praised. The first, the first, he says, because God should be praised because according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. God should be praised because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. One of the reasons we should praise God, look at at what he says there, he has caused us. He has caused us to be born again. He is driving in the, the critical importance that it's a work God has done in us, not some work we have done from our own being and understanding and the weighing out of what's good, right, and proper. It's critically important that we understand that. There are a lot of things in life, and I think this is probably where the difficulty comes in for a number of in our culture. That when you go out to explain to somebody and you say, look, you don't want to use synthetic oil. you want to use real, you don't want to do this type of moisture barrier in your home, you want to do that. You don't want to use this type of insulation, you want to do that. And so we're weighing out all of these different things. And we're doing it based upon information we're receiving, right? And so at the end of it, we take all the information we've received and we tick down through the list and we say, "Oh, well, I believe this, I don't believe that. I believe this, I don't believe that. I believe this to be superior to that. I believe this to be inferior to that. And that's kind of how we do most things in life. I want this job, not that job. I want to live in this city, not that city. I want to drive this car, well, I'm just going to be stuck with it. Because it's all I can afford. But as he goes through, look what he's saying there. He has caused us to be born again. The supernatural working of God is what has made you alive. The supernatural working of God is what's made you alive. We recognize from the beginning of creation... Through recreative work of God in your heart, it has all been Him. This is overwhelming. Genesis opens up and God speaks into the nothing and He creates. We're we're awed. We're blown away and. It, and it, it draws our mind, and we want to understand the nuances of how this happened and when this happened and how many years it happened over, and we're losing the majesty of the creative endeavor of God that he spoke and he created. When it comes to our own salvation, we recognize that the text says he caused us to be born again, but we to know the who's, the how's, and the why's, and, and when did this happen, and when did that happen? And we lose the majesty of what he has done. We worship God. Not because we fully understand all the machinations that led to us being be made new again, but we worship God because he did it in spite of us. He did it not because we were lovely. He did it not because we were inclined towards him, but he did it, look what the text says, according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. We spent some time in Ephesians chapter 2 discussing what it means for God to be merciful towards us. I think most of us like to see ourselves as kind of the best image of who we are. And we certainly hope that that's what those around us see. The best image of who we are, us on our best day, us when our hair looks just right, us when the humidity's not affecting it, us when our complexion is clear, us when our zippers are up, us when there's no food on our shirt, us when our breath does not stink, us when we've had eight hours, us in this perfect everything when people perceive that our bank account is full, our car is clean, and everything is nice and neat and in order. God does not see us as that doesn't see us as this he sees you as you are ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us listen to this verse 5 even when we were what dead in our trespasses everybody say we were dead you were dead, but he has made you alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This tremendous, tremendously kind and loving work of God is what's made you alive. He's caused you to be born again. And he's done so according to his great mercy, not his perceived ability on how you would be once his kindness met you. We have no category for understanding this. We have no life situation or life experience whereby we see this to be normative and expected in our relationships to the others in humanity. But the supreme, omnipotent creator God who made all things and upholds all things, he invested himself in you and it is him who has made you to be alive. We reflect on that. What does it cause us to do? It causes us, as Peter demonstrates, to worship God. Look what it says here. He's caused us to be born again, but he's caused us to be born again to something specific. What is it? It is a living hope. All the hope that you see people describe in this past week was certainly filled uh, by a number of people having blind and stupid hope as they bought Powerball tickets. was it, like 100 and 292 million shot of winning the thing? I bought like 50 tickets. Not really. You can... (laughs) Two or three of you went, yes, I bought 50 tickets. <laughs> Friend, you wasted, uh, I, I read somewhere it was like $2 a ticket, you wasted 100 bucks. Next time, give me that 100 bucks, and I can, I can, I can bless a number of people or my family. And so, <laughs> you, can, you can choose, you're going to throw it away anyway. And so, hoping at winning the lottery, it's blind, it's stupid hope. It's like, I, I don't even know how to articulate it. I read about a woman who created a GoFundMe page this week because she had spent all the money she had buying lottery tickets. Every last dime she had buying lottery tickets because she knew that she was going to win. Studies have also come out and said people that know they're going to win are terribly bad at math. And so she knew she was going to win, so she created a GoFundMe page which was particularly used for like, hey, I want to put down a down payment on my house, I want to get out of debt, I want to, my band, we're finally going to record a cover, don't do that. But, but she, she created this, well the people at GoFundMe saw it and they were flabbergasted and they killed her account. They're like, really? Like you can't do that, you can't do that. She put her hope on winning and she knew she would. And then ultimately she put her hope on other people bailing out her ignorance and that too came to be false hope. We recognize the hope that Christians have isn't hope at looking at balancing all the things that we think would turn out good or things we hope would turn out good, but it is on the sure promise of the finished work of God. It's on the sure promise of the finished work of God. Our hope is a living, vibrant hope. And the way Peter constructs it there, he's giving us the indication that the moment this hope took up residence in our heart, it began to cause us our hearts to beat anew. And this beating heart, which lives for the hope of God, knows no end. It knows no end. It's not bound to our infusement of power. It's not bound to us taking in the necessary vitamins or vitamins, depending on where you're raised. This hope endures and was given to us by whom? By the power of God from his hand to us through what? Look what he goes on to say. It is through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ through the dead is what's given us this living hope. This is critically important. It's critically important. We have to defend, we have to stand up for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's so incredibly important that we recognize that the resurrection isn't some neat and novel concept that's inside Christianity. Friends, the resurrection is central to Christianity. Christianity rises and falls on the centrality and truth of the resurrection. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. Christianity rises and falls on the centrality of the resurrection. Paul, recognizing this, wrote a letter to this church in Corinth which was just an outright mess. It's an outright mess. And he wrote to them, starting in verse 12, and listen to what he said. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So he's centering everything in Christian proclamation on Jesus' being raised again. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Paul centers Christian believing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 15. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise If it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul centers all of Christianity on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, if Jesus Christ did not raise up again from the dead, then everything we hope and set our belief in is false. We're selling a false bag of goods. Your struggle with the resurrection is not a struggle on a tentative Christianity, but it is a struggle against Christianity itself. As Christians, we are those who worship a risen Lord. As Christians, we are those who worship a risen Lord who has affected resurrection living in our hearts today. The only reason that we have uh, the ability to live renewed life, that we are born again, is because Jesus Christ himself in death defeated sin and death, and in his resurrection reigns as a ruling king. Do you understand that? Paul centers all of these things, and Peter's cluing in on this. He said the reason we have a living hope is because it is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the reason that we are to worship God is because he has what? He has made us alive, and how has he done it? He has done it through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And what has he done it towards? For what does this mean? resurrected living to what does this new life direct look what he says next in verse four it is directed towards an inheritance that is three things imperishable undefiled and unfading imperishable undefiled and unfading peter as he came to describe this inheritance, this new life was yours, this new life in heaven which awaits you, he came to describe it, he recognized that any positive attribute that he applied toward, toward it would ultimately be limiting. So he chose instead to describe it, not in terms of what it is, but in terms of what it is not. Do you understand the critical importance there? When you describe something as what it is, uh, and I, I've shared this example, and it's the most derogatory towards me I can think of, so I'm going to share it again. We were in Prague, and Valerie was asked to describe her husband and, uh, by these guys we were going to be working with. And she, she said, he's loyal, he's kind, and she goes on and on. It's making me blush, just remembering it. And the guy she was describing it to, the man who would go on to be our team leader, said, you have just described a golden retriever. And so perhaps, you know, when we enter into this process of describing things in terms of what they are instead of describing them in terms of what they are not, we recognize what Peter's facing here, what he's dealing with. And so he goes on and he says, when I begin to think of the inheritance that is yours in Christ Jesus, all I can think of, all I can think to describe it is in terms of what it is not. So he says, first of all, that it is imperishable. It's imperishable. It's this thing that 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 is never going to spoil. It's never going to end. In fact, Paul uses this same word to describe Jesus in First Timothy one seventeen. He says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Immortal, imperishable. It knows no end. This is the certainty for which Christians have. On the eternality of their destination, of where you are going when you die. Your inheritance is what? It is imperishable. It's imperishable. It's never gonna go away. He describes it. Secondly, he says that it is undefiled. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus, and he uses the same word in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. He says, For it was indeed fitting. That we should have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Your inheritance that you're going to receive, it's undefiled. To describe it as, as pure... Uh, kind of paints this idea that it now exists as pure, but what he's painting this picture of, what he's communicating to us and telling us that it exists from now forevermore in a state of being undefiled. That's the surety. That's the confidence that Christians are able to have in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties. He uses next a word that's actually only ever used in this verse in all the New Testament he says that it is unfading It's unfading the Greek word used there is, is the same word that's used to describe this mythic flower the amaranth that they would write about and they'd say that it would never lose its foliage that it would never lose its its color and they would describe this flower as opposed to grass grass which grows up it's beautiful it's green and it falls and it fades and it dies but the amaranth flower would never lose its color. So every time somebody walked by it, they would see the beautiful hue of, of the red. And they would stare at it and they would see it and it would draw them in and they'd be captivated by its beauty. When Peter chooses to describe the inheritance that you and I will receive, he uses the same word there that's used to describe this flower, this flower that's always captivating, it's always beautiful. Every encounter with it Leads the one who sees it, leads the one who beholds it to be astounded by its beauty. Thinking on the subject of inheritance, thinking on the subject of inheritance, some of you in this room may receive a tremendous inheritance someday. Probably not because the person giving it to you has won the Powerball. Probably not. But some of you may receive a tremendous inheritance someday. Some of you may have already received a tremendous inheritance. Everything you could ever hope to receive from a family member, from a loved one, or a long lost relative, it's ultimately going to perish. You can think about it and say, my situation right now would be dramatically improved if I had 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, a million dollars. It would, it would drastically improve. It would let me pay up this debt, that debt, change my lifestyle. If this happened, then I could reorder and change the way I do some things. All of that money will eventually turn to nothing. Either through your spending or when you die, it's useless to you. Any gold, any real estate your family might give to you, You're either going to have to pay taxes on this or it's going to diminish. It is going to be laid waste. All things crumble. All things decay. This is our experience with inheritance. This is our experience when we start thinking about receiving something from someone. But the way Peter describes this, he says, you have a heavenly inheritance that is already yours. In this inheritance that you already have, it can't be diminished, it can't be defiled, it can't be done away with, and no matter how much you avail yourselves to the reality of it, it is still there. There is no familiarity breeding contempt when it comes to this inheritance. Every fresh encounter with it leads you to the same experience that you had the first time, when we finally take possession of it. Look what he goes on to say. This inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. It's another passive idea. God is keeping your inheritance safe. You can't fritter it away. You can't waste it. You can't be negligent of it. Why? Because he is keeping it in heaven for you. This is the depth of which God loves you. The depth of which he loves you isn't centering your inheritance and the certainty of you having eventually receiving it based upon how you're currently doing. This is not how it works. It's not a system of points and counterpoints. It's not a system of merits and demerits. Oh, uh, Valerie did especially well, and so I'm going to deposit 10000 to her account. Oh, Matt did especially poor, so I'm going to make a withdrawal from his account. It is not working this way. This inheritance for which you will receive is undefiled, it is imperishable, it is unfading, and God is safekeeping it in heaven for you. Look what he goes on to say. We worship God. Why? Because he has saved us. How has he saved us through the resurrection of Jesus? What is he saving us to? A heavenly inheritance. What's happening to us in the midst of this? What's happening to us in the midst of all this turmoil, of all this frustration, of all of this angst, look what he says to us in verse five. He turns squarely from this discussion of the inheritance, and then he says, "You, verse five, who by God's power are being guarded. God is keeping you safe as well." You see, it's not just a matter of you uh, wasting your inheritance. It's a matter also of God keeping you safe in the midst of trials and difficulty. It's the midst of trials and difficulty in our life, sickness, uh, income, troubles, we've lost our job, wife leaves you. Whatever things you go through in the midst of this life, God is still safeguarding you. Still keeping you safe. His hand is ever upon you. Because look what he says there who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping you safe. It's on the basis of God's incredible provision of safety to us, which causes us to worship him again. So you go through and you you read that, and, and and the difficulty, I think, for us is in the midst of trials and difficulty. Our marriage is particularly rocky. For whatever reason, your spouse cheats on you, you cheat on your spouse, you have spent money he, she didn't know about, you've got a gambling issue, you're an alcoholic, you're addicted to pornography, whatever issues have come up in your marriage, it's created, it's manifested itself as tremendous difficulty in this. So we look at it and we say, for those of us who seem ourselves as the innocent party, we say, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this difficult, it shouldn't be this painful, I shouldn't be experiencing these things. We recognize the reason we experience pain and difficulty in this world is because this world is not our home. It's not our home. If you've not yet been disappointed in this life, you've not yet lived for very long. If you've not yet been hurt by someone close to you, then it's probably an indication that no one is very close to you. You're going to suffer difficulties. You're going to suffer heartache. Some of you are going to go through things so incredibly difficult that it feels at times to be soul crushing. When you seek to place all of your hope in the finality of your life that this world is the best thing coming, when you seek to establish this world as paradise, only going to be disappointed. All the accomplishments that you could ever amount to in life are ultimately going to disappoint. They're ultimately going to lead you to disappointment, to a sense of failure, to a sense of of missed understandings, of misprioritizing the things and affairs of your life. Look at the promise in verse 5. Who by God's power, God who in Genesis 35, 11, speaking to Jacob, refers to himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. The one who is able to, able to overcome all things. In fact, the one who has overcome the thing to which you could never overcome through the power of Jesus, he overcame sin and death for you. And he graciously extends to you eternal life, a living hope and he extended it to you in the midst of your waywardness in the midst of your spiritual deadness in the midst of your indifference and he beckoned you come and when he beckons you come what we read here in verse 5 is that he keeps you on course over the course and duration of your life it is God who is helping you to stay the course although you might feel that your faith is at sometimes tenuous recognize, friend, your faith is always strong. Even though there may be times when you feel like your faith is, is waning, you feel like you are backslidden, this is from your perspective, your prerogative. As far as God in His vantage point, He recognizes sin in your life, but He recognizes too the certainty of your salvation has not shifted. The solid foundation from which you came to Him has not altered, it has not faltered, it has not failed. Why? Because he is safeguarding you. Because he is keeping you safe. And the promise we see there in verse 5 says that by this faith union with God, you will have a salvation presented to you. When? In. The last time. Either at his coming or your going home. Let me finish with this. Adnarum Judson. Judson was a, uh, an American missionary. He's actually the first American missionary to Burma. If you're looking for a really good but, but quite long read, you should read To the Golden Shore. It's the biography of his experience there. Judson, Judson goes to Burma, and he goes to share the gospel there. And they, they highly prize lying, stealing, being deceptive. And every time there's a power change in Burma, I mean, it's, it's, you don't want to be related to the guy who used to be in charge. Why? You're going to die. Good news, they're going to treat your body well after they've killed you. Bad news, you're still going to be dead. So Justin has a hard time reaching Burmans with the gospel. They identify largely as Buddhists, and to switch to Christianity is unthinkable, and it almost certainly will lead to torture and likely death. And so he's sharing the gospel with these men over a number of years. And he meets with this one man named Mong Ng. And he asks him this question. They're having this, this discipleship kind of probing deal. That he's met with him for a long time. And he turns to him and he says, Do you know what it is to love Christ better than your own life? Do you know what it is to love Christ better than your own life? The person who loves Christ better than their own life is able to praise and worship God in the midst of trials. The person who worships God... in in, in the midst of these trials, knows what it is to love Jesus better than life. This is why we sing over and over again, Jesus is better. In all of our sufferings, in all of our sorrows, we give a steady testimony that Jesus is better. So Judson posed the question to him. Knowing full well that this man may die for his faith, knowing full well the price that it would cost him to be a Christian, he asked him, he said, when you consider Jesus, do you love him better than your own life? His response is incredibly instructive to us and helpful for us. He said, when I meditate upon this religion, I know not what it is to love my own life. Pray that same thing for us. That as we meditate on the truths of Christianity, that we would know not what it is to love our own life, that we would know not what it is to worship comfort, to worship success, to worship money. That as we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus, on the movement of God and his foreknowledge to bring us to salvation, that we would respond the same. Would you join me in praying that God's word would be effectual in our hearts?